Good evening. Uh, it's good to be with you, if not in person, virtually, and uh, have an opportunity to share my heart with you all and to share God's Word with you. Uh, I am grieved that we can't gather together to, to worship our living God as a, as a body. Uh, but one of the great comforts I have is that I know we are bound together in Christ in the heavenly places. We are united to Him by faith and united to one another. Uh, and so, even if we're not together physically, we are together spiritually. And so, on that, I want you to know that I love you all and that I care for you and that I have deep concern for your well-being and that I'm praying for you all and that if anybody needs anything, I want you to feel comfortable reaching out to me and we will come up with appropriate ways of caring for everyone uh, in the congregation. On that note, very specifically, I want to mention that um, if you are... Uh, unable to get out and get anything like groceries or you need help with childcare, or there's some issue that you have but you feel as though you need to stay in the house and stay isolated, um, please do not hesitate to call me or to call uh, John Spear or to reach out to us and we'll come alongside you as best as we can. Um, uh, just Please, we are a body even if we can't be together physically and uh, we want to, in the wisest way possible, continue to care for one another. And that goes for you all. In, in wisdom, consider how you might care for each other. Um, and not just each other, but I think I put this in my letter, but that we would care for those in our immediate vicinity. Look at the neighbors that you have around you, particularly those who are vulnerable. Um, think of ways that you might minister to them without uh, endangering them. Uh, even if it's as simple as a, a phone call or a note or uh, a package on the on the doorstep or anything like that, consider how you might love uh, your neighbors as well. I also wanted to let you know that uh, our leadership, the session, and, and John Spear and and, and other others are talking constantly about the best way uh, to move forward in regards to both worship and ministry. Um, and we will keep you abreast of what we decide going forward, but you can uh, assume for this week, obviously, we're not meeting and we will not meet next week. Um, and hopefully we'll uh, let you know in the next couple of days um, how long, at least for the foreseeable future, that we'll plan on meeting virtually or not at all. Um, but having said that, I want, I want to avail you with uh, the ministry of the Word. Um, since I can't be with you physically, uh, you know, I often complain about technology, but this is one of those great moments where technology is actually a gift to us, uh, where in generations previous to this, it would have been very much more difficult uh, for us to share in the Word together. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and preach God's Word to you this evening. Uh, we're going to continue our, our, our continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, and I think that consistency and that constancy of having the regular ministry of the Word and that common um, sermon that we're all thinking about and meditating on um, helps in knitting us and binding us together. And we'll look forward to the day when we can come together and worship and discuss uh, the things of God together. So with that, let me go ahead and um, uh, read God's Word to you. We're looking at the Gospel of Mark. Um, it reminds me too, in the email that I've just sent out, you should have received a copy of the bulletin. 
and in that bulletin um, you will find the liturgy for the week and this is my goal is to get out to you before uh, Sunday or on Sunday the, the bulletin along with a link to the sermon so that you can gather as a family or as a couple people or even as yourself and go through the same order of worship um, that, that, that we've crafted together in order to uh, worship God and even though we can't worship together physically we can be spiritually bound by these things um, as we worship the same with the same material and so you can turn with me now on your bulletin uh, we're going to be looking at the gospel of mark chapter 5 uh, we're going to be reading verses 1 to 20 and i just want to remind you um, from last week that that we looked at the power and authority of christ over the wind and the waves you remember that jesus was headed across the lake um, he was asleep in the boat and a storm arose and uh, Christ calmed the storm by the by the very word of his power, power of his word. And this week we're looking at the power and authority of Christ over the the powers and principalities of the world over Satan himself uh, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. So if you have your Bible or you can turn there with me in your bulletin, we'll go ahead and read God's word uh, together. The Gospel of Mark. Chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of uh, Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there was there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. And no one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones and when he saw jesus from afar he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice he said what have you to do with me jesus son of the most high god i adjure you by god do not torment for he was saying to him come out of the man you unclean spirit and jesus asked him what is your name he replied my name is legion for we are many and then he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea, and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city, of the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, uh, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it, uh, described to them what they had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him he might be with him and he did not permit him but he said to him go home to your friends and tell them how much the lord has done for you and how he has had how he has had mercy on you and he went away and began to proclaim in the decapolis how much jesus had done for him and everyone marveled the word of the lord thanks be to god let's pray Heavenly Father, we ask that you would reveal to us this Lord of glory who is full of mercy, this great King who rules over not just the wind and the waves, but over every power and principality in this world. 
who redeems us from evil. We ask you would help us to see this in Jesus' name. Amen. The world is more than our eyes perceive. It's more than the dust on our shoes. It's more than the cells of our body. It's more than the sun and the moon and the stars. It is, as Martin Luther put it, a world with devils filled. It is a spiritual as well as a physical world. And as our world faces the existential threat of a deadly virus that can hurt our bodies, it's important for us as believers to consider the spiritual battles that are raging for our souls. And our text this morning, that spiritual battle breaks out into the physical world, exposing us to the efforts and the effects of the evil one and his minions on humanity. Now, I tend to think that as 21st century westernized people, we have a hard time understanding and making sense of things like demon possession. Now, there may be someone here who's had some interaction with it, but for most of it, us, it's a foreign concept that has been relegated to Hollywood caricatures. And, and I would even go further. Even religious scholars have scoffed at the supernatural world of the New Testament. Rudolf Bultmann, a liberal scholar of the mid-20th century, said, It is impossible to use electric lights, and wireless, and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries, and at the same time, to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. Now, I'm not sure why exactly technology negates the spiritual realm. If you ask me, uh, technological advances simply distract us from it. And even though I would say most of us don't buy Boltman's secular view of things, nevertheless, we're impacted by it. We have trouble understanding that this world is both spiritual and physical. And when we read it in Scripture, it seems foreign to us. We're uncomfortable with it. We certainly rarely talk about demonic activity and spiritual warfare in our own personal lives. On the other hand, there may be some among us, some of you, um, that are on the other extreme. You readily see the spiritual battles that rage. Luther's world full of devils makes complete sense to you. In fact, you might even find yourself constantly worried and anxious about the power that the evil one wields. You might be obsessing over the angelic and the demonic world. Lewis said it well in the preface to the screw tape letters when he said, There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, that is, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors. Well, our text addresses both extremes. On the one hand, the spiritual conflict is very present and palpable in the text. There is no escaping it, and Mark expresses it in quite vivid form. A unified horde of demons is found tormenting a man. And on the other hand, as powerful as this legion is, it does not reign. It does not rule. Though it has the force of hell behind it, it cannot compare to the Lord of glory. 
in this text, we see King Jesus ruling over the powers of hell and setting the prisoner free. And I want us to consider this truth, that that the Son of God sets us free from the tyranny of of the devil. That's what I want us to think about. We'll do it in three parts. We'll look at the tyranny, the triumph, and finally the transformation. First, the tyranny. You'll remember that last week after preaching on the shores of Galilee, Jesus left in a boat with his disciples to go to the other side of the lake. After calming the storm, he and the disciples reached the far side of the lake. They had come to a region called the Decapolis. Uh, It was a Gentile region. It bordered Israel. It was, if you had a map in your head, it was in the the northeast corner, if you will, uh, of Israel and and, uh, what might be called modern-day Syria. And they, they came, that is, the disciples and Jesus came to the area of the Gerasenes. There's another name for it given in Matthew, and it seems that there's some discrepancy, but it's the same place. Uh, it was a desolate area with caves and tombs where a man with an unclean spirit was forced to dwell. He was relegated to these caves. Mark gives us an aside about the man. It seems that the local people had tried to control him. They had chained him, but on account of his power uh, and the, the power of the unclean spirits in him, he was able to break those chains. No matter how much they tried to bind him, they could not control him. Now, it's really hard to imagine the scene, right? The disciples pull up to a shore uh, after having almost lost their lives in the storm. And then they were undone by the power and authority that Jesus displayed in his command over the wind and the waves. And now, after asking the question, who is this that even the wind and the waves obeyed, they've they've come across probably in deep contemplation about this this Lord of glory who was sitting in in their boat. And as they came to shore, they were thinking, oh, we're made. (laughs) This is is an intense uh, time that we've gone through. Only they come to a place that was haunted by a powerful, demonically possessed man roaming among the tombs and caves of the area. Can you imagine? That's a terrifying day. We had the, the storm. We had the calm. We had the Lord of glory. And now we have this demonically possessed man who breaks chains who moans and screams and cuts himself. And he's there. It's a terrifying day. But imagine, imagine the daily terror that this poor man experienced. The disciples had a terrifying day, but this man lived with a terror every day. Imagine losing total control of your body. Imagine imagine losing your speech. We don't really know how much awareness he had, but the text says he was crying out and cutting himself. Was the demon inside him doing that? Was it his own tortured plea and longing to to be done with the pain and torment of this demon? The text doesn't say. Whatever the case was for this man, he was oppressed and terrorized to a degree we cannot imagine. 
And here's the most important thing to note about the demonic activity in general, the aims of the evil one. The goal, the goal is the utter destruction of God's image bearers. It's no wonder that this man caught himself, that he disfigured himself. The, the, the demon was driving him towards destruction. Later in the gospel, we'll see another demon possession where a demon attempts to destroy a boy by throwing him into a fire. It was through Satan's great temptation in the Garden of Eden that the Imago Dei, the image of man, was marred, disfigured. Demon possession is, is a very highly visible and gross manifestation of the tyranny of the evil one. But every day, and in many ways, the evil one is at work in marring and destroying God's image in mankind. He leads us into temptation. He entices us to do evil deeds. He seeks our moral and spiritual decay. And he works through our sin to destroy others, to mar others through our hate and our murder and our deceit and our adultery and our theft and our covetousness and all the like. It's his goal. We see the ranging effects of the demon possession in our text. The townspeople are enticed to mistreat this man and to cast him out. They, 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 they can't deal with him. But they also are experiencing the terror of these demons as they see the chains being busted apart, as they hear the cries of the man night and day, as they, they, they fear for their own life and safety. We fool ourselves if we do not see the spiritual reality of the world around us, that the evil one is going about like a prowling lion seeking to devour its prey. For the past days and weeks, we've been instructed to keep our social distance six feet from one another because the coronavirus can be carried along asymptomatically by folks. We can't see the disease necessarily. We, we don't know when it's present or not present. So it is with the powers principalities of the world often. They're not so often visible, right? They're not like a demon possession. Again, C.S. Lewis highlights this in the preface to Screwtape Letters. Uh, just, just as an aside in terms of what Screwtape Letters is all about, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting fiction about demons talking about how to mar, disfigure, destroy people. I encourage you to read it. It's enlightening. But he said in the preface to this, he said, I live in the managerial age, in a world of, quote, admin. The greatest evil is not now done in those sordid, quote, dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint, and it's not done even in concentration camps and labor camps. Sure, in those we see its final result. No, but it's conceived and ordered moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in clean, 
carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voices. The evil one is at work when we don't see it. And evil is presented and in a way that is sanitized. And nevertheless, it's tyranny. It captures our hearts and our minds. And it even hurts our bodies. And it seeks our total destruction. The evil one can cause such great oppression and despair, even to the degree that we aren't aware that it's ruling over us and over our hearts. When, when we look at the world around us, and, 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 and I say this to those who are here this morning who, or this evening who are listening to this, who, who may be asking the question, how do I know, how do I know that I'm being ruled? And I would just say, really apart from God's grace, the tyranny of the evil one is the air we breathe. It's like a fish in water. It doesn't know he's in water. It just swims along. But the evil one, though he has a certain power and tyranny, he is not all-powerful. Nor does he even come close to being all-powerful. You see, there is triumph over the tyranny the text tells us that just as Jesus stepped out of the boat immediately there there met him out of the tombs this man with an unclean spirit you wonder what the disciples thought as they sailed across that lake to the Gentile lands I'm sure they wondered what Jesus had in mind uh, even as the storm and the calm had come they must have thought wait we're not heading back home now? Wasn't, wasn't that why we came out here into the sea? So that you could show us your awesome power over creation? So that we would know that you're the Lord of glory? But Jesus wasn't done showing him, showing them that he was the king of kings. And so they landed in this desolate location on the outskirts of the town. And there he met immediately, it says, as the Lord had designed by this man with an unclean spirit. And isn't this the way of Jesus goes out to seek and save those people and places that remain under the tyranny of the evil one. Isn't that his way? That he goes out and he seeks and saves the lost. He doesn't wait for us to come to him, but he runs after us. He goes across the lake to the darkest place in the area and he says, I'm going to make this mine. I always find it interesting that when Jesus tells his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, it isn't a picture that we often have of the kingdom of God or the church. We often think of hell crashing down the gates of the church, right? The culture washing us over, constantly beating us down and pushing us uh, out. And uh, there's this sort of feeling of losing ground all the time pushing back against the kingdom of God. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus says that the church is the one going out and breaking down the gates of hell. The kingdom of God is going out and defeating hell 
and any outpost it deigns to set up in defiance against that great king. Jesus, here he asks for the name of the demon, and the demon responds and says that he's legion. Legion, of course, was a Roman army term. Uh, in a technical way, it numbered around 6,000 people. Likely, the demon was simply uh, expressing a large number, a cohort, a large group of demons that had coalesced in this one man in order to destroy him. And, and, and that's what this demon horde legion is doing here in this Gentile region. It is an outpost of hell on earth. That Satan, in his foolish defiance, thinks, well, if I can't have Israel, I certainly can oppress and destroy these Gentiles. But King Jesus comes and he says, no, no, those are mine too. And, and there's a ton of irony in this exchange between Jesus and the demon. The first irony is that this demon-possessed man, upon hearing the cry of Jesus, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. He, he runs to Jesus. And he falls at his feet. You would assume that the demon would take the man as far away from Jesus as possible. You would, you would think that as soon as you saw Jesus stepping out of the boat, knowing that that before you was the very Son of God, that you would run the other way. But at the command of Jesus, the demon horde falls at Jesus' feet. The second ironic thing that we know in the text is that the demonic horde confesses that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. Now, this is particularly remarkable uh, in the Gospel of Mark because no one, no one, not even the disciples, acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, Peter confesses that he's the Christ, that he's the Messiah, but no one says he's the Son of God. That is, until you get to the cross, until you get to that place where Jesus is hanging, crucified, and the Roman centurion looks up and says, that's the Son of God, surely. That's it. The demons and a Roman centurion are the only ones in the Gospel of Mark who proclaim that this is the Son of God. It's But that Jesus, by his very presence, solicits a confession by the demons is remarkable, right? There is only one king. There is only one Lord, one ruler of all. There is only one who, by the very power of his voice, can calm the wind and the waves and can call a legion of demons to bow before him. It is the very Son of God, Jesus himself. The third ironic thing that we notice in this exchange is that in the last foolish aim to preserve themselves, the demon pleads in the name of God. They know that the only power equal to the Son of God is the power of His Heavenly Father. How foolish. How foolish. There is no rending asunder heaven, no pitting father against son. The father sent the son to establish an everlasting kingdom where the powers of hell would be forever vanquished. And yet, and yet, at the very end of all of this, we come to a very curious conclusion in this exchange. Verse 10 says that the demon begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. 
the demon horde was afraid. And what was the, the demon afraid? What, what, what made him so afraid? What does it mean that they didn't want to be sent out of the country? Is it just they didn't want to go to another region? Maybe, maybe. But if we look at the parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a little comment that the demon says in that account. It says, Have you come to torment us before the appointed time? And and, and instead of being tormented or sent out into another country, they asked to be sent into a herd of pigs. I think it's important to note this. Jesus... His purpose was to come and to to crush the head of the serpent. He was the seed of the woman. And in that moment, on the cross, he would finally and forever defeat Satan. But until that time, and and I, I would go one step further, that was the moment of the victory of Jesus, and yet the ultimate end, the consummation of it all, would, would be when he comes again. And in the intervening time, King Jesus permits the powers of hell to still act. I think that when they asked to be sent, not to be sent out into another country, they were asking not to be destroyed permanently. And they were they were calling out the time has not yet come, the appointed time hasn't arrived. And so they were, they're saying, let us continue to do our evil. And the hard truth is that Jesus permits it. He permits the powers of hell to still act. That's a really hard truth. It says in the text that he gave them permission to go into the pigs, and in doing so, Legion destroyed those creatures. They run down the embankment and off into the sea like a bunch of them. What a sight it must have been. And Jesus permitted. Often the question arises if God is good, why does he allow evil in the world? It's one of the hardest questions. And on one level, I can honestly say I don't know. Could there have been another way? But there wasn't. What I can say is that in permitting evil, he has allowed for the magnificent display of his mercy and grace and judgment. In other words, we know more of God, of his wonder and of his awe through his permission of evil, through us suffering under the weight and power of sin. Because in that, we we see the wonders of his mercy and grace. And as He brings judgment. We see the awesome wonder of his justice. And in that way, God is glorified. He's made known. He's revealed. And even through the pain and hardship of enduring the tyranny of the evil one, when we are released, we know the goodness of God ever more. We know His grace and mercy in a way the angels can't understand. Now, I think Jesus is also painting a picture with these pigs. Pigs, as we know, were unclean creatures. 
at least in the Jewish world. And this unclean spirit was thrown into these creatures. And all of this uncleanness get tossed into the abyss, into the sea. And there's a picture, even if the final judgment hadn't come. Yet, this was a picture. We saw and heard a few weeks back at the great white throne that sin and death and hell would all be thrown into the flame of fire. All those powers would ultimately be vanquished. It was a picture. It's also a picture. Here, Jesus is saying, yes, I'm permitting evil to continue for these pigs to be destroyed. This isn't the appointed time. But there is time that is coming. And in this moment of the cross, when it comes, it's the place where the most vile act of wickedness and evil that has ever been done is permitted. The Lord of glory, the very Son of God, is crucified, is hung on a cross. And in that moment, it seems that Satan has triumphed. Yet in that very spot where the seed of the woman is crushed, the seed of the serpent is vanquished forever. There is an appointed time that even the demons know is coming and that has already come. Jesus permitted the destruction of the pigs, but in the end, the king triumphed over this legion of hell on the cross. He has conquered sin and death. And this is good news, friends. Jesus comes and he seeks those bound under the tyranny of sin and under the authority of the evil one. Jesus comes and he sets his people free. He comes and he redeems us. He lays down his life and offers himself up as a sacrifice and pays the penalty for our rebellion and sin. And he sets us free. Friends, this is good news. Do you know what it's like to be under the weight and tyranny of evil? To constantly sin, to hurt, to cause pain, to be selfish fail in love. Friends, Christ is victorious. He has conquered His and our enemies. And He sets us free from that tyranny. And we are transformed. And this is my final thought. Well, the herdsmen lost their livelihood. Um, they ran off to tell everyone, everywhere, what had happened. To come see while that herd, herdsman was off running, we see another picture. They come back, and this man, who had been demon-possessed, was transformed. When they came back, the townsfolk with them, uh, they found this once demon-possessed and dangerous man who ran around naked, who broke chains, who cried out day and night, who cut himself. They saw him sitting, dressed in his right mind, and it says that they were afraid. It's another ironic moment. Here was a man who was possessed. He, he was oppressed. 
And in their mind, that was normal. That was the way things had always been. Evil and oppression were normal. They were the expectation. It was, as I said before, the air that they breathed. And now they saw the complete transformation and restoration of this man. And they were afraid. And honestly, rightly so. After all, none of them could bind this man, could transform him, could change him, could rid him of this evil legion. They were right to be afraid, for they were in the presence of the Son of God, the one who had authority and rule even over the powers and principalities of the world. Yet, in their fear, instead of bowing down to the Lord, instead of worshiping, worshiping him. They asked him to leave. Jesus was too much. It's too much. Certainly, he threatened their livelihood, right? Those those pigs were their livelihood. What else was he going to do? What else was he going to disrupt in their life? He was too much for them. But that was not the response of the restored Jesus wasn't too much. Jesus was everything to him. He wanted to be with him and to go with him, to follow him wherever he goes. And isn't that the way of it? When we're set free from the tyranny of the devil, from sin and from that constant, persistent desire to to rebel, when we are set free from those things that no longer rules over us, when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives, when those things happen, King Jesus becomes everything to us. He doesn't lose his grandeur. We don't stop with that wonder and awe. No, I, I think our awe grows, it expands. But rather than repelling us, draws us in. We want more. But the other thing the wonder of Jesus does to us is that it it can't help but spill out of us into others. You see, Jesus calls us to follow him. But in that following of him, he calls us to share him. To, To hide him away, but to to let him out, to let him to be known. And so instead of bringing him into the boat, he sends Jesus, that is, instead of bringing him into the boat, he sends this restored man off to spread the good news of the king. To go off to his friends and family and to start that work of spreading the kingdom of God, the rule of Christ, beyond the borders of Israel on the edge of Israel, across the globe. Pouring out of it. Go, tell your friends. Share what the Lord has done for you. Well, Martin Luther penned his words of his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, some 1500 years after this story. I imagine that it was this song that this redeemed man sang to his friends singing oh and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us 
we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us, the prince of darkness grim, and we, but we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, it abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ Jesus, the King who redeems us and who sets us free from the tyranny of the devil, from sin, and sets us free and makes us alive in him to go and share the good news. Lord, help us as we go out into the world to our friends and family. Help us to sing this good news, freedom from tyranny and triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.